there's not a lot of recognition of what could upend or affect that plan. And that is what starts the whole chain reaction of bad sales ethics. Welcome to the Innovation and Compliance Podcast, part of the Compliance Podcast Network. Join us every week as we talk with industry innovators who are making compliance to help business run more efficiently and at the end of the day, more profitably. Here's your host, Tom Fox. Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox back again for another episode. Today, I have with me Andy Rudin. Andy, first of all, I wanted to thank you for your perseverance. And welcome to the show. Well, same. Thank you, Tom, for your perseverance as well. And I'm honored to be here. Sandy, could you tell us about your professional background? Sure. I've been in uh, IT products and services ever since I got out of college. And my background is in supply chain and logistics, mainly manufacturing and distribution, which means I have been in many factories and seen products get moved many places and many different products being made. And my first job was actually what propelled me into this information field, which was an ink factory, which I've recommended to people, if you ever want to slip a conversation at a meeting, you just tell them that you're in the ink business because nobody understands it. Nobody even thinks about it. But in fact, and I just looked this up, it's a 37 billion with a B dollar industry in 2021. So People just don't think about printing ink, but uh, I spent six years. That was my start in IT. And ever since then, I have been very interested in not only how things get made and distributed, but how the information is uh, central to that activity. And that's basically been my career. So I've had a number of roles in that area from direct marketing and sales to product management to professional services consulting. And that brings us up to today. So it's interesting when you said ink, I am a aficionado and collector of Mont Blanc pens, fountain pens, and I use those fountain pens. And so when you said ink, it didn't even dawn on me that print ink, I thought immediately, well, you know, he works with Mont Blanc, creating the inks that uh, I use in my fountain pens. So very cool. Well, tell us what your current role is, Andy. I have a couple of roles. I am the managing principal of a consulting company called Contrary Domino, which is based in the Washington, D.C. area in Northern Virginia. And I'm also adjunct faculty at George Mason University, which is uh, based here in Northern Virginia. So I fill both of those roles, I guess, with equal time and equal vigor. And so that's a 40 plus hour a week activity. So Andy, when you first reached out to me about coming on this podcast, You had an interesting story about how you sort of developed an interest in business ethics. And as you know, many of the listeners to this podcast are in the compliance and ethics industry. So you're coming at it really from a little bit different perspective. And we're going to get into that a little bit later. But how did you first really get interested in business ethics in your profession? Well, the short answer is I've always been interested in it. And I am particularly interested in it because unlike many things in business where people like rules and formulas and frameworks and policies and things are very deterministic, ethics is not telling anybody listening to this anything new, but I find it appealing because there aren't easy answers. And so that has always attracted me to thinking about it and to bringing it into the discipline of sales and marketing. But in particular, I think really what propelled me, what got me interested was a company that I worked for in the 90s had a uh, scam where an employee 
was running a side business within the organization and this individual was eventually discovered and was fired from the company. But in thinking about it years later, I realized how many mistakes were made in the organization from the senior management to, of course, this individual who scammed the organization and poignantly how much damage occurred, but it never reached the press. There were no articles written about it. There was nothing directly reported on a financial statement in the organization. And so uh, being fairly close to it because all this was happening in the district office where I was working, I realized there was a lot of stakeholder damage that occurred. So I realized thinking about it from a risk perspective, a risk management perspective, how preventable this whole scam could have been had the right processes and uh, mechanisms been in place, which they weren't at the time. So that really catalyzed my interest. And then fast forward to 2005, when I was in graduate school, we studied a very interesting case about prudential insurance. And the professor teaching that was actually an accountant. And his background, through his lens, he looked at risk management and in particular ethical risk as an accounting problem, as a strategic business problem. And that opened a new pathway for my thinking. So those were the two watershed moments for me to bring me into the ethical realm. I'd like to now turn to your organization, Contrary Domino, and the focus of it, because it, to me, led to a very interesting insight that you put out into the marketplace around revenue risk management and the revenue risk management cycle. But could you take us back to what led to the founding of Contrary Domino? Sure. Like many consulting companies, it starts with well, I'll just strike anything that moves, basically, when you, you think about your own business opportunities. And I started to concentrate in revenue risk because I discovered, and actually going back to the reference I made to my graduate program, that risk management is not really brought into the sales and marketing function, even though we tacitly acknowledge it. So we think of uh, funnels and pipelines, and we talk about percentages of close, percentages of the likelihood of that an opportunity will close or come to revenue fruition. But we don't think of it often as a risk management problem. And so I saw that opportunity and wanted to bring more process rigor to that, more mathematical rigor, and bring the, the risk management principles into the the realm of revenue generation, rather than what I had been brought up with, which was a what I call a deterministic view. The deterministic view is our revenue goal is $100 million for fiscal year, say, 2022. Go take that mountain. And my experience had been anything but, that there were forces and events and situations that threatened or jeopardized that outcome. So that was what brought me into the focusing my consulting in uh, revenue risk management. Who is your customer base and how do you help them smooth out the ups and downs of the sales cycle? I really like the way you phrase the question ups and downs because it brings to mind volatility. And of course, volatility in any kind of result is pretty much the enemy of business planners. So we like things to not have ups and downs, but to to be constant. So 
as you might expect, my client base is mainly information technology firms because that's my background. That is a really, really broad scope since today most companies have some component of information technology either embedded in their product if it's not the central to their business strategy. But generally, I'm, I'm looking at companies that have a sales force of 10 people or more, and the symptom or the, the prevailing condition is a gap. And that gap is, when I speak of a gap, I'm talking about the delta or the difference between planned uh, results and actual results. And so that is really the starting point, looking at that difference and then basically unpacking what risks or which risks came home to roost to create that delta. And that delta can also be a positive one as well. You can overperform your plan. But that generally still points to a planning issue. So I realize it's a wide target market, but that's those are my typical clients. So what are some of the key services that Contrary Domino provides, Andy? Well, because ethics has now come to be so profound in marketing and sales, specifically good ethical conduct, I really focus in the risk management space and then in the ethical conduct space. So a lot of a lot of my work is in the analysis, ethical risk exposure, and in the mitigation. How do you prevent ethical problems from occurring? And there's a lot of infrastructure that's necessary with that, which my articles describe and is on the website as well. But it means that companies have a culture that embraces or at least encourages the reporting of risk, of ethical risk, the conversations, allowing conversations about it, allowing safety, and then having processes in place to take action when they're known. So helping organizations establish that culture and then establish processes and mechanisms to prevent ethical problems from occurring or at least minimizing their likelihood is central to what I do. Andy, this podcast is in a series or a podcast series called Innovation and Compliance. And although compliance is in the name, it's really about innovation. And what struck me was when I researched you and and what you do is you're really only less than a handful of people in sales who talk about sales as a risk and a process. And you framed it around revenue risk management. And I found that incredibly intriguing. I know lots of super sales guys. I've been through corporate budgeting as well, but you're really looking at it in a different way. So I wanted to maybe focus a little bit more on this. What is revenue risk management? And then what's the revenue risk management cycle? Yeah, so revenue risk management is really risk management with an adjective in front of it. I look at it as really not far removed from any other risk management challenge where you have to go through activities related to risk identification, risk prioritization, figuring out, well, what are the highest likelihood, highest impact risks, and then doing some sort of stochastic analysis where you're considering your various outcomes, whether it's in lead generation or in revenue attainment or your likelihood of closing an account or a sales opportunity, and you're looking at your worst case, your best case, and then your most likely case, and then running through your scenarios iteratively and then determining, well, 
what are we most likely to achieve? And it's a process that I did not find in any of the organizations I worked with because the cultures didn't contribute to it. And actually, to the contrary, if anybody had the temerity of introducing a <laughs> situation, well, to the VP of sales, here's why I might not make my number. The immediate reaction was either you're not being a team player or you're bringing me problems and I want solutions. And this attitude is endemic in sales organizations today. And that is, again, the opportunity that I saw and continue to see in sales risk, in revenue risk management is taking just the the fundamental risk framework that you might find in in any other discipline and bringing the same principles into risk management. And actually, if if you think about it, if you compared uh, revenue to, say, energy exploration, oil exploration, it's the same thing. We're going out into a uh, universe of possibilities and we're trying to find the best opportunities for ourselves. In this case, we're driving dollars through the pipeline instead of oil. But the puzzle is very similar. So when I said I'd only met a handful of people that really have the insight that you have, I should say it was only one. And it was actually a company in the energy industry. And it was four guys who are 25 and had all gone to college together. And they looked around for some properties to invest in. And they put the rigor around the revenue as opposed to oil coming out of the ground, much as you just described. And they had an entire process and they had the discipline to stick with that process and became, by age of 30, all multimillionaires simply because they put rigor around this process. But you also talk about revenue. Well, before we get to revenue governments, I have to pick up on one of your points, which was if you do have a problem and you do go to the head of sales and say, I'm not going to meet my numbers, that, and you spoke to that as a cultural issue. And in the compliance world, speak up and whistleblowers are very ubiquitous, or at least concepts, but it's not so much somebody picking up the phone and saying, hey, I'm seeing an accounting fraud like you saw uh, years ago in a business, but it's, I'm having some trouble, or I see that we could perhaps do things a different way. And if your culture doesn't allow that, it's a huge wasted opportunity in this situation you described where the director of sales only wants solutions or not problems. He's even making it worse because one, no one will ever go to him if they have a problem. And two, if there's a problem, there's probably a collective solution amongst the sales team, if not the director of sales, that could be brought to bear for the person who's having trouble. So I found it incredibly prescient that you include culture within a revenue cycle as well. Any thoughts on that? Yeah, I have seen in in my experience working in sales organizations and with them, I've seen a lot of that insight just walk right out the door just out of frustration because the sales typically works in a silo or often works in a silo. So you may have heard the expression say, oh, I don't know what those people in sales are doing, but they keep hitting their number and gosh, we just leave them alone. That is, uh, from a risk management perspective, probably a, a red flag that needs to be somebody needs to pay attention to because the fact of the matter is the sales should never work in that type of silo. So what happens is sales management tends to get very insulated and they'll put pressure and edict on the sales force, which by the way, just tends to come to see how this knits together. 
the financial side of the business will just put a number on the uh, sales department. They'll say, well, our planning for fiscal year 2022 calls for a $300 million revenue goal. And then that goes into sales. And this is the state of the art today. If they have a sales force of 300 people, they'll take that number, 300 million, and they'll, they'll just parse it out to the sales organization via an Excel spreadsheet, sometimes with an up factor and just say, well, finance said 300 million, but we, we're going to just make our goal 310 because we know that not everybody's going to make their number. And so the point is there's not a lot of recognition of what could upend or affect that plan. And that is what starts the whole chain reaction of bad sales ethics occurring because salespeople know the outcomes are tend to be pretty draconian. If you don't make your number, you're fired. And the sales managers know that all the way up because bonuses are assigned on revenue attainment. And if you don't make your number, then your job is equally in jeopardy. And this is really, you layer on top of that, what I had mentioned before, what you picked up on was the culture. If you speak up, if you say something that's contrary to what we're trying to achieve as an organization, then you're not on the team. It's not surprising to realize how uh, scams can quickly ignite and expand. The only thing I would disagree in that recitation was that it's not probably it's a red flag. It is a red flag. It is a red flag. When sales hits their numbers, one of my favorite sayings from one of my last corporate positions is we had a regional manager in the Far East who said, if I violate the code of conduct, I may or may not get caught. I violate the code of conduct and I am caught. I may or may not be disciplined. If I miss my numbers for two quarters, I'll be fired. He never missed his numbers. So you're absolutely right. So we talked about culture, but you really take it a couple of steps beyond that I really want to get into with you. And that is the next step that I alluded to. You talk about revenue governance as a key to revenue risk management. What is revenue governance? Well, there's a lot of different definitions for it. My definition is the involvement and oversight of revenue generation activities by others in a cross-functional, across-departmental way in an organization. So as I mentioned before, traditionally organizations have left the revenue, the, actually the, the, the entire revenue engine in the sole domain of the sales department. That's been now spread out to where uh, service, route sales, Customer support can even be responsible for revenue. And part of that is, is because of what information is done in a, in a business. It's actually spread out customer information to many different users instead of confined it into one department. But the governance, to your immediate question, the governance relates to all entities in the organization having sun visibility into the activities of the sales organization and putting sunlight or a spotlight on what they are doing. And then as coupled with that is the opportunity to take action if something is not compatible with corporate strategy or if certain processes or activities that are occurring in generating revenue bring risk into the organization. And of course, that brings board level activity or, or board level involvement into the governance as well. But that's the way I view revenue governance. And I've saved what I think is the best for last, and that's risk assessment. And 
every compliance practitioner knows your entire risk management framework, whether it's anti-corruption, whether it's anti-money laundering, whether it's export control, whether it's cybersecurity, whether it's data privacy, whether it's data protection, whether it's environmental, or whether it's revenue, it all starts with a risk assessment. And then you build out your risk management strategy based upon your risk assessment. So I wanted to ask you if you could describe what is a risk assessment in a revenue strategy look like and what's the role of the risk assessment from your perspective? Yeah, so if you've done a general risk assessment in an organization, some of them can be used from a template point of view. You you know that you have external factors, you've got internal factors, and you can take them off of a list of, okay, we would expect that as a, say, a commercial organization, we're going to have economic risk, we're going to have technological risk, we'll have market risk, things like that. And then you can start to unpack those. Internal to the sales organization, there are many risks that a lot of risk practitioners don't think about because unless you've worked inside of a sales organization. So for example, a goal conflict is is a major one that not that other areas of the company like HR and legal and finance don't have goal conflict, but it's it's a particularly major concern in, in a sales organization. So you have to look at the the specific mechanics of how your sales organization works. Do you have a direct sales organization? That is, are you selling directly to your end customer or do you have what's known as uh, channels? Because there's a different set of risks that occur with uh, with selling channels. And so you need to look at the the specifics of what sales organization encounters, what salespeople encounter, what they're asked to do in their pay plan in particular. So there's compensation risk is, is another because the adage is be careful what you pay for because you're probably going to get it. So you can identify risks that are unique to the selling organization through those artifacts. So that's some of what you need to add when you do a risk assessment within a sales organization, not just use a template for the general risk that your organization might encounter. And if I could ask you to maybe put on your Karnak the Magnificent hat and prognosticate into the future a little bit, where do you see the risk, revenue risk management as a tool down the road? I used to say 2025, but we're getting too close to that. So uh, maybe 2030 and beyond. Is this something that you really see as a tool that can help facilitate revenue growth in, in a more sophisticated but more compliant way as well? Well, it's sort of like asking uh, an oil executive where they see the energy going and <laughs> of course it's in fossil fuels, you know. But yes, I see risk management in the sales organization to, to be much more dominant. And part of the reason that I say that is for a long time, we've already been doing it. As I mentioned, anytime you use the graphic of a sales funnel, risk is inherent in that. So there's the top of funnel and then there's a taper. So why does a funnel have a taper? So the concept of risk management, even though most organizations I work with don't put the risk management, the formal risk management rigor to it, they're already thinking that way. So that is a good thing that the industry is, the concept is not so disruptive or foreign to the idea. It's like, okay, yeah, we're we're already thinking about pipelines and we know that our pipelines have to have a, 
a, a factor of our sales target. So a 2x pipeline, 3x pipeline would mean two times our revenue target or three times our revenue target has to be in our sales pipeline. So I see in the future more activity around risk management and especially as businesses become more integrated and as, uh, for example, I see a much greater role for financial planning in the sales operation because financial planners need to understand much more closely, well, how are we prospecting? How are we qualifying? Lead qualification is a huge risk management challenge. How do we qualify our leads? Those are actually financial problems as much as they are sales problems. So I see far more recognition, far more involvement from other departments in the in the risk management function. And I think recent events with Theranos and, of course, Wells Fargo, VW, bring the ethical risk to the forefront of organizations and right into the, the sales organization. The issue is selling is a very vulnerable and sensitive place because salespeople are controlled through a pay plan in large amount. Most organizations pay through variable pay, variable comp, and it's the linchpin. This is where organizations interact with their customers. And so there's great potential for good happening, and there is also great risk. There's a, a huge potential for foul play. So the more organizations wake up to that idea and move away from, well, they're, they're making their number, let's leave them alone, I think the better off we'll be. And unfortunately, we are near the end of our time for this episode. But before we conclude, I wanted to ask you if any of our listeners wanted any more information on yourself, your company, or really any of the topics we've touched upon in this podcast, what would be the best way for them to uh, garner more information? Well, they can look at my LinkedIn profile, which I stay pretty active with and uh, comment and share. And that's my name, uh, linkedin.com slash IN. We'll link to it in the show notes. Contrary Domino will get you to my LinkedIn profile. And then the website is contrarydomino.com. Twitter is Contrary Domino and also my name at Andy underscore Rudin. Andy, before we leave, I have a special bonus question for you, because you're the first person I've ever met who attended the University of Virginia, in, uh, who's in school there, at least in 1976, when they won their first ACC tournament. And it strikes me you're a pretty big UVA fan. So I was wondering if you just uh, could give us a few thoughts, if you remember on that ACC win, and then really UVA basketball up until just a couple of years ago when you guys won the national championship. Well, I appreciate the question, and yes, UVA basketball is near and dear to my heart. Last night's game against Duke notwithstanding, that wasn't uh, joyful to watch if you were a UVA fan, was if you're Duke. I'm a proud fan, and as far as the, the ACC wins, the one that stands out in my memory the most is, of course, the most recent one that got the t-shirt, 2019 NCAA champs, so uh, we'll uh, hope to Tony Bennett sticks around and, and we can get another one. Andy, unfortunately, now we are at the end of this time. But this has been a fascinating exploration. I really applaud you for the sophisticated analysis you've come up with. And I hope we can continue this conversation. Yeah, same here. And I really appreciate the opportunity to share this. And it's something that I find is underrepresented in sales organizations, but I'm encouraged. I think there's some great things to do ahead. If you want to stay up to date on the latest innovations in compliance and help your business run more efficiently, subscribe to this podcast and help spread the word by leaving a review.